Hey, uh, turn with me in your Bibles. Uh, we're going to jump back into Acts, but I'm going to kind of build off of last week's message, uh, which was a call uh, for us as a church to maintain unity. Uh, we announced a bunch of changes, internal changes uh, at the church, and when change happens within a church, it often creates, uh, it can create within a community um, uh, concerns or fears, uh, and we just wanted to address those head on and just be uh, absolutely upfront that the changes that we're making are not just for change's sake, but that we believe that God wants to do even greater things through our community. Um, and we want to utilize uh, the giftings that God has given us within the staff and making sure that everyone uh, is functioning to the best of their ability within those gifts. And uh, that, I think it was a really powerful uh, look at the call to be a church that's unified, a church that's not afraid to speak the truth and love to one another, uh, a church that does not hide its concerns, uh, but actually is, is direct in its desire uh, to make Jesus known throughout the city. And so I found this verse. Uh, you remember the last message we considered in Acts was the conversion of, of Saul, or the Apostle Paul, as we know him for much of the New Testament, as he did write 12, possibly 13 books of the New Testament, uh, if you like me, think that he wrote Hebrews. Uh, but I think the important thing about, about that conversion is what comes directly after uh, his conversion. And, and we're going to just be looking at one verse today uh, in Acts chapter 9, verse 31. But I'm just going to give you a quick synopsis of what has happened. Saul has been converted. Uh, Ananias has come, laid his hands on him, he receives his, his sight is restored. He is baptized and immediately enters into Damascus, preaching the gospel, going into the temples, making the name of Jesus known. Uh, and people are confused because Saul was the main enemy of the church. Remember, it said that he was going about ravaging the church, breathing threats around it. As I said, the whole atmosphere, the air that he breathed was his hatred uh, for this sect that he saw threatened uh, his belief system as a very zealous Jew, as a Pharisee. But after his conversion, that same zeal that he had in attacking the church was now being put to use in an attempt to build up the church, to make Jesus known. And with that threat removed, the church actually goes into a period of peace. Not for Saul, because everywhere he went, and, uh, especially in the, well, actually through his entire ministry, uh, he was so outspoken, so zealous for Jesus that he constantly was, being, his life was constantly being threatened uh, for his witness. And you remember in Damascus, they had to, the, the disciples there had to get him out of Damascus, and then he went to Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem, the same thing, they had to get him out of Jerusalem because people kept finding uh, Saul, who becomes Paul, uh, this incredible threat to the church. But at the end of chapter 9, after Saul disappears, which he'll disappear now for the for about three chapters, and we'll move in next week to Peter and Cornelius, uh, we find this amazing statement. The threat has been removed. Uh, and often, I just want to point out that when a church enters into times of peace, I would say that we are in that. We're, we're not under any incredible threat. There are looming threats as our culture uh, becomes increasingly post-Christian. Uh, the message of the gospel and the cross um, grows in its offensiveness. That's very real. Uh, people are more and more offended uh, by the message of grace. 
uh, we need to understand that with that can, can come greater levels of suffering or persecution. But we have not experienced any sort of purging of the church uh, in regards to a persecution by a government or by a particular uh, institution. Uh, we're just dealing with the cultural realities of a society that is, that is moving more and more away uh, from, uh, from Christianity and moving, to, and I think that Portland is a true post-Christian city. But we're not experiencing real persecution. We might have some people say, get mad at us for what we believe. We might have people occasionally picket against uh, a church going into a building, but we're not experiencing the kind of persecution that they were dealing with here. But when a church is experiencing peace, actually it runs the greatest risk of losing its identity. And traditionally, a church... Uh, it, in the midst of severe suffering is when it tends to explode. But this is one of those peculiar moments where the church experiences peace and experiences healthy growth, uh, both spiritually inwardly and outwardly in, in its missional uh, movement into the world. Look what it says in Acts chapter 9, verse 31. It says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace, and it was being built up. I think this is a really important word. Another way you can say it was being edified. Uh, it was growing spiritually, internally. And walking or living uh, in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. And what I want us to consider today is what are the marks of a healthy church? And there are two components that are stated here that a healthy church is one that is growing internally uh, and is missionally moving outward. Uh, and, and I think that what's fascinating is that there is a paradox at the center of it, that this church, as it experiences peace, is being built up as it, what, walks in the fear of the Lord, one side, uh, and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the other side. Now, this verse does not mean that God scares you and then like a, like I'm like the, the dad who does, I did this last night to my wife and she hates it. She gets so mad at me and I have to be careful because she'll like try to punch me because it's just her reflex. But I snuck into the kitchen behind her as she is, uh, she is doing dishes and I knelt literally down below her and then just grabbed the back of her legs and she screamed so loud and then stepped on one of our dogs and then our dog let out this horrible cry, and Darcy was, the, the result was not what I intended. I mean, I wanted the scare, but I did not want the, uh, the bombardment of, like, what is wrong with you? Why are you so immature? Why would you do that? I just heard our puppy, and I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. This is not the fear of the Lord, then the comfort of the Holy Spirit. God does not, like, hide in the closet, scare you, and they go, I'm sorry. I was just kidding. That's not what the point of this text is. Uh, and I don't know why that illustration came to me because that's not what it's about. But it is a paradox. So the, the point that I want you to see is that there's a strange paradox here because we don't think of fear and comfort in the same breath. And yet these are the two components that creates both internal growth and outward movement. I think it's really important for us to note that. I think that, is, that it is important for us to understand as a church that the world judges God by what it sees in the church. Do we realize that? That the world judges 
God based upon what it sees in us. As I've been kind of meditating upon that, it's been blowing my mind, really, when I think about that. It creates within me um, this overwhelming sense, especially as a pastor, fear. Fear and trembling is what that creates. Responsibility. It makes me feel the weight of responsibility. And, and even worse, as a, as, a, as a carrier of the gospel, uh, the danger of trying to actually complete in the flesh what God has begun in the spirit. Because I feel responsibility, but I feel completely incapable of actually fulfilling that responsibility apart from me even casting myself in even greater dependence upon the king who works in and through me. For the mystery of the gospel is the mystery of Christ in us, the hope of glory. And I think that Dr. Stuart Holden said it best when he said in one of his addresses, the world does not believe in whom they have not seen because it has no reason it has, because it has had a reason not to believe in us whom they have seen. This is one of the things that I was talking about last week, and I do want to clarify one statement, and it really it was just it was a poor choice of an illustration um, last week, and I, I just feel like it was worth addressing. I, I used the example of, of two couples last week around unity and talked about one that came in that, that's just engaged themselves and given themselves to the church and have been intentional about what they've done and what they've experienced in church has been life-giving for them. But then I, I, I shared about meeting with another couple that was struggling uh, and, and disconnecting. Uh, and and I, I felt that there was, and, and we talked about this as a pastoral staff, that A, I don't want you guys to feel like if you come and share with me a struggle, that not only is Josh not going to care about what I say, but he will then turn me into a sermon illustration. And I just want you to know that I will turn you into a sermon illustration, but I deeply care about what you have to say. No, I'm just joking. I just felt like I, that, was a, that was one of those moments where when we speak quickly and much, you're just bound to say something dumb. Uh, and the illustration was not to create an unwilling... I, the whole point of the message was that we need greater transparency. There are real issues that need to be addressed, but often when, what my point was that there are many things that aren't real issues, but we don't ever discover that because we don't have the willingness to talk it through, to actually be honest enough to deal with our conflict. And I just want you guys to know that we are here for you guys. We care deeply about your heart. We want to know that you're doing well. We want to know you as a church. I can't know all of you personally, but we do have a a large staff and a large elder team that deeply desire uh, to shepherd you well. Uh, And so uh, my apologies for uh, a poor illustration choice, but I do want you to know that that it is important when we talk about unity, uh, that we talk about the reality that we need to be a people that are transparent, that are walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit that the world outside is judging God based upon how we live. They will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. And I think this is super important when we realize that we are called to be ambassadors of truth in a world of illusion. And that is so important. One of the things I said last week is that we have to actually get through the honeymoon, which is an illusion, to the truth. And when we get to the truth, we realize that church is challenging, that we're called to love one another, to hold each other accountable, uh, to walk in the spirit, to continually hold tightly to the gospel and not allow legalism or some sort of therapeutic uh, theology enter into our midst where we lose sight of Jesus the Savior. 
And so I want us to actually think about these two phrases today. And and even my desire to say I'm sorry for that illustration last week is wrapped up in a genuine fear of the Lord. We're told that teachers will be held to a greater level of accountability someday. And I'm like, I'm saved by grace. That doesn't mean that I don't have to give an account. And this should be important for us to understand. So how do we define the fear of the Lord? How do we define it? Uh, It's not something that we talk about a lot, but I think it's super important because the scripture talks about it a lot. And I think that there is a, 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 a tendency within American Christianity in particular, especially Protestant Christianity, uh, to be overly chummy uh, with the God of the universe, uh, to, to lack awe and reverence that the God that, that cares about you as if you're the only one in the world is also the one who spoke in the universe left into existence. Why do we fear the Lord? And the first thing I would say is that we fear God because his love is not safe. His love is not safe. Remember what I say that God's love is elective, that is that he chooses to love sinners in their sin, but his love is also holy. That is that it's purifying. He meets us in our sin, but he is not content to leave us there. And his love is a burning fire. I love this. Uh, I was reading through uh, that Gerhard Ford book called How to Be a Theologian of the Cross, and he said, sentimentality has infiltrated the church and has created a serious erosion in our language of faith and our practice. The approach the church often takes today is more therapeutic than it is evangelical. We no longer see ourselves as sinners, but as victims. I think that's really interesting. An Episcopalian priest by the name of Alan Jones once said, everything is permitted today in the church, but nothing seems to be forgiven. And this is what happens when we turn our Christianity into therapeutic teachings, better ways to to live better, to have a better marriage, to have a better attitude about work, how to do this, how to do that, instead of seeing that we are broken, sinful people. And if we don't understand that, we will not see the need for a savior, a savior who comes to save us in spite of our sinfulness, but he is not content to leave us there. And the fear of God we fear God because he, his love is not safe. His love will burn us clean. In fact, in Hebrews 10, 31, it says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. What happens when Isaiah meets God in Isaiah chapter six? He says, I saw the, high, the Lord high and lifted up. His robe, the robe of his glory filled the whole temple. And, it, and this is just a vision. And what happens, Isaiah, it says he falls on his face. And he says, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips, who lives amongst a people of unclean lips. There is this recognition of holiness. Even when Moses approaches the bush, God says, take off your sandals because the ground that you are standing on is holy and what made it holy was God's presence. That there is a reality around God. I love the, 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 the great illustration. C.S. Lewis captures it well in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when, when Susan and Lucy are talking to Mr. and Mrs. Beaver about Aslan, the lion who is very much a representation of Jesus. And he says, is Aslan safe? And she's like, safe? Aslan isn't safe. He's good, but he is not safe. Do we not recognize what it says in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 through 29? Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. This is what it says. 
Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Deuteronomy 4.24, this is what the writer of Hebrews is quoting from. The God is a jealous God. He is a consuming fire. His love will burn us clean. We sing that song all the time, to burn, uh, to burn for you. I mean, I wrote that song. I remember someone actually confronted me once, like, I'm kind of uncomfortable with that, to, to burn in you. Like, A, it's weirdly intimate, and, uh, and B, it's like, I don't like to think of God burning me. And I'm, uh, I'm like, but there is a type of fire that God is often described as, and it's meant to purify us. It burns, God's love burns fiercely against everything that is unlovely within the beloved. And he will not be content until all that is unlovely in the beloved is burned clean. Do we not understand that there will not be the smallest piece of hell in heaven? It's not what we get to bring there. I think that this is important because this is the fear that overcomes all other fears. And we are afraid of so much but we're often afraid of the wrong things. We need freedom from all of this. And I would ask, is it possible that the fear of the Lord is the very means by which we overcome the other fears that destroy our lives so fully? Exodus 20, 20 says this. Listen to this exhortation. Fear not, for God has come only to test you and to put the fear of him upon you so that you do not sin. Does that make sense? Fear not, for God has come only to test you and to put the fear of him upon you so that you do not sin. The exhortation seems paradoxical. Do not fear so that you might fear. (laughs) Jesus says something kind of similar in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Don't fear the realities and your mortality. Don't fear those things. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. I think that this is important for us to understand that the fear of the Lord is indeed the beginning of wisdom. It's the outcome, first of all. Why should we fear the Lord? Well, let me just say that the fear of the Lord, it's the outcome of God's very presence in our lives. True fear, listen to this quote from Pascal, French philosopher from his famous book, Pensees. True fear comes from faith. False fear comes from doubt. True fear is joined to hope because it is born of faith and because men hope in God in whom they believe. False fear is born of despair because men fear the God in whom they have no belief. I think that's a fascinating statement. False fear is found in Genesis 3.10 when Adam and Eve are hiding. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. That's false fear. God came into the garden to come directly to, to, make, to, to bring a solution to the brokenness of Adam and Eve. And they hid from God. God is walking in the garden toward them, making himself known to them. But they were afraid of him because they did not understand him. Because their sin blinded them to the character of God, to the goodness of God, to the love and the mercy of him. But true fear, I believe, is found in Genesis 28, verses 15 and 17, when Jacob receives a vision uh, of God. He lays his head upon a stone and the 
they, he sees a ladder from heaven and there are angels ascending and de- descending on the ladder. He says, and then God speaks to him after that vision. He says, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not keep you until I have done what I promised you. Then Jacob woke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? There is none other than the house of God and this is the gate of heaven. Notice when he recognizes God's presence, what he feels is fear, that awe and reverence. The creator of the universe, Yahweh, cares about me. Creates this deep, deep reverence. He woke up and he was afraid because God was in the place. I think that that Presence leads to another aspect, another facet of the fear of the Lord that is so healthy, and that is it establishes humility. We considered this last week that humility is one, is one of the key components of moving toward unity in the church. And I think the fear of the Lord points us to our human vulnerability as reaching fulfillment, actualization, and security in the presence of God. This is exactly what happened to Isaiah when he saw the vision of God. It humbled him. It threw him to his face. And and I think that this is important for us because without the fear of the Lord, we betray ourselves. We think only of ourselves and do not discern the difference between right and wrong. Psalm 111, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. It begins and it maintains the relationship. Proverbs 1, 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. When we talk about the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, it's not talking about any kind of knowledge. It's not talking about information. It's talking about relational knowledge. This relational knowledge that changes the way that we live. Because Psalm 25, 14, this is so fascinating. It says the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. And he makes known to them his covenant. It's connected directly with love. It's a synonym, actually, for the love of God. Because Deuteronomy ten twelve says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. I think that one of the things that we need to understand is that the fear of the Lord, I was trying to think of a good, a good example of this, but the fear of the Lord is not a fear that causes us to run away from him, but it is a fear, a fear of offending the only thing that can save us. The fear of offending our good father who loves us so much, whose perfection should create trembling within us because we see the closer we are to him, the more broken and desperately we see that we need him. The fear is, is, of the Lord is the recognition that we are dealing with the one who spoke and the universe leapt into existence, but it is also dealing with the one who actually sees and cares about everything that we do. And so for, for us, the fear is not this desire to run away from God, but it's a desire to be so close to him that we might not offend a good and loving father. This is why it is always balanced with love. I would say the fear of the Lord keeps us on the path. The love of the Lord keeps us moving toward the goal. And I think that that's a helpful way of thinking about it. I think this is also important that the fear of the Lord actually helps us recognize what sin is. In fact, Proverbs 8.13 says, the fear of the Lord is 
hatred of evil. Notice that the fear of the Lord is defined in Proverbs 8, 13 as a hatred of evil. To fear God is to hate what is evil and to love what is good, which we are told to do again. Pride and arrogance in the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. Why? Because I fear God, because those things are opposed to God and because I love him and do not want to offend him. Because God hates evil because evil robs him of what he loves, which is people. I think it's important for us to understand that the fear of the Lord actually motivates us to live for others because it pulls us out of a self-centered existence and helps us to recognize that we were created for his glory and for his purposes. In fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 10 through 11 says this, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Notice that, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. It doesn't talk about, oh, I'm, I'm saved by grace. There is, no, there, is no, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is true. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a judgment for us as believers. And it says that we will give an account. Each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. That fear of the Lord, and this is what I think is so fascinating about that. It's the kindness of God leads us to repentance. God's love for us is meeting us in our brokenness. We need to recognize that's the holy, loving God that meets us there. And his presence creates within us a fear and trembling, a recognition of who I am dealing with, that I am to humble myself before my king because I cannot live the ways that he commands me to apart from his spirit, apart from his holy love burning me clean, apart from his empowerment by his Holy Spirit. And what I love about this passage is it is not the church's growth is not just dependent upon his fear of the Lord. It's not that we're afraid of a God that can't be known. We're afraid because he's present, because he is knowable, because he cares about us, because he saves us from our brokenness, because he is holy and is moving us toward a particular goal in which we will receive one day resurrected bodies where we will be free from these sinful corrupt bodies where even the things that we do in the power of the spirit are still corrupted by our mixture Amen. that creates hope within me and i think it's important that we recognize that the church's health its interior growth was that it walked with this incredible sense of the holy god's presence in its midst isn't it isn't it important for us to understand that our sin is always directly connected to our unbelief that when we sin it is essentially in that moment saying, I will be my own God, which means that I do not believe that God is here. I do not believe that God actually cares about the decisions that I make. I, he's not really judging me. Should we sin that grace may abound, Paul asked the Roman church. And he says, absolutely not. The wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. What the church should never do is suppress the truth and unrighteousness. But actually what we should do is as we yield ourselves to the gospel and accept God's free, free, unmerited favor, casting ourselves in naked trust upon the mercy of God, that that reality, his grace covering our lives, recognizing his presence in our lives should create within us such a stir, such a humbling that it moves. And I do think that there are times where I am afraid. I am afraid when I make those moments where I walk in unbelief, 
But that fear is not a fear that causes me to move even further off the, tra- off the track. But Lord, forgive me. Quickly respond. I want to be right with you because I want to know you. I pray that God's presence would be so overwhelmingly real to you that you would experience the health of the fear of the Lord because it is the fear of the Lord that frees us from the fears that this world plagues us with. We're afraid of death. We're afraid of rejection. We're afraid of illness. We're afraid of unemployment. We're afraid, think of all the things. I am a man who has lived his whole life plagued by, I think, one anxiety after another. And I, and I realize that the fear of the Lord, and that is the recognition of the gospel, is what actually eradicates or begins to destroy those false fears. Do not fear the one who can kill your body. Fear the one who created you. This is the key to life. But look what he goes on to say. Luke writes, not only were they walking in the fear of the Lord, but they were also walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. The comforter comes, and I think this is important. What does that mean? The comfort of the Holy Spirit. Well, that word comfort is directly connected to the word that is used of the Holy Spirit himself by Jesus uh, in uh, the upper room discourse, where he is called the paraclete, the comforter or even the helper or the advocate. And this idea is that the comforter comes not in order to make us comfortable. You know, I always joke that when Darcy and I started Door of Hope, our goal was to create the most comfortable space possible that you might hear the most uncomfortable message possible. And I picked a good one today, the fear of the Lord. It's just the guys are sitting like, this can't be a part of the Christian life. The Bible, from cover to cover, the fear of the Lord is not something we can escape. Uh, and I think that it's foolish for us to ignore it. Uh, and I think that we should, we should recognize his holy presence in our lives. But I love this, the comfort of the Holy Spirit. The comforter comes not in order to make us comfortable, but to make us missionaries, to make us witnesses. Notice what it says in John 16, verses 7 through 14. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me concerning righteousness because I go to the father and you will see me no longer concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth for he will not speak on his own authority But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. Remember what I said about being filled with the Holy Spirit. To be filled with the Spirit is to allow him to occupy your whole personality with the adequacy of Christ. The Comforter comes, actually, to move into our lives that through our community of faith, remember what I said in the beginning, the world is looking at us and making opinions about God based upon what it sees in the church. That should create within us a stir, a genuine fear of the Lord, which means that, Lord, take seriously that you actually have a part to play in the expansion of his kingdom on earth. That, yes, it is Jesus who saves, but he does it through human hands, human feet, human mouths. 
How shall they hear if there is no preacher to preach? The church is meant to be a conduit of the living Christ, that the adequacy of Jesus is meant to fill us. The comforter comes that through us he might bring conviction to the world, not as we go out and judge the world, but as the world sees the love of Christ being manifested in us because we are so aware of the presence of Christ. I think this is so powerful because it says he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Sin because they do not believe in me. In other words, the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin because it does not believe. What does that mean? It means that they see within us genuine belief that makes them realize that they do not believe. That we live in such a way where the Spirit actually makes known the person of Jesus. When Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all people unto myself. How is he lifted up? He is lifted up through the community of faith who lives in unity of the Spirit, who is edified interior and moving outward with a desire to, to see witness happen. Notice that the end result of this verse is that the church multiplied. But isn't it funny that multiplication often in the church today is just transference growth? You're unhappy with one church and you came to another church until you're unhappy at that one. And then you find another one. But what's powerful here is that a church that is truly healthy and rooted in the person of Jesus Christ is a church that is spirit-filled, spirit-empowered, and that the conviction of the Holy Spirit comes through us because we're living in the midst of his comfort, his presence. That awe and reverence, perfect love casts out fear. As we recognize the presence of Christ and we humble ourselves before him because he is the creator of all things, his presence fills us and that comforting of his presence. And I think that the comforter comes into us, as I said, not to make us comfortable, but to make us usable. Convicts the world of sin by showing us or showing the world through us what forgiveness looks like, what holiness looks like, what Christ in us looks like. We make known the mystery. Do you guys understand that? Convicts the world of righteousness because I go to the Father. What does he mean by that? That we are actually carrying within us the resurrection life of Christ. What did he say? It's good that I go to the Father because if I did not go to the Father, the Spirit would not come to you. His presence with the Father means that now, because of that, according to Jesus, his presence is manifest in all of us because we have become the temple of God. The world can see the reality of Jesus Christ in the church, not because of the singular preacher, but because the whole community of faith has been spirit-filled, spirit-empowered, and now has the ability to make known the reality of Christ. I love this even concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Do we not recognize that the spirit-filled community that lives in unity, that is known by its love, actually has the power to set people free from the bondage of dominions of darkness. As we walk in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Spirit, the church is able to begin to fulfill its true mission. Someone has asked me, um, how big do you want Door of Hope to be? And, I, and I've always been puzzled by that question. Uh, a, because I've worked at enough megachurches to know how unhealthy they get. Uh, I've, I've worked at two churches that were over 5,000 people. And it, let's just say it's hard to be a natural community at that size. 
And so on one side, I'm like, I've, I'm quite content with the size that we are. But then there's that part of me that I see in the book of Acts when the church truly is functioning the way it ought to function, which is unified, walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, that it is impossible to stop people from coming to the saving knowledge of Jesus, who desires all men to be saved. And if it's anything other than that, it's not good news. It's good news. And so when people ask me, what if I think the church should grow, I wish we would grow to the point where we just have to keep planting new churches and sending people out because, because so many people are getting saved. Not because people are moving disenchanted with the church from church to church looking for the perfect message as church connoisseurs, but unified in a desire to make Jesus known because we know him ourselves. That's the goal. So when we look at this verse and we see this statement, that the church was being built up, walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And notice that word walking. Walking is a powerful thing. It's motion without strife. Walking means you're, we're actually going somewhere. It means that we're actually accomplishing something. Walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Do you want to see Door of Hope grow in the right way? I want us to grow as a community of faith that is marked by our incredible unity, that is marked by a love for one another and a desire to make King Jesus known that, his, that the fear of the Lord will be present, that there is a reverence and an awe that is felt and manifested in our community, that people sense the presence of God. God is in this place and I did know it. That the comfort of the Holy Spirit is manifested, that that means that we are so under the rule of the Holy Spirit that we can experience the God of all comfort who wants to make known through us the very person of Christ. For if I be lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. And if we see growth where non-believers are coming in and experiencing real belief in us, I believe that we will see inevitable growth, the right kind of growth, what I hope is revival growth, which is our city being turned upside down on its head for the kingdom of Christ. Amen.